This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, three-minute theses on Alzheimer's, cancer, hearing and oxygen. But first up, here's the news. The 2014 Nobel Prize for Medicine went to Anglo-American John O'Keefe and Norwegian couple Maybritt and Edvard Moser for their discovery of the navigation and mapping system of the human brain. The Nobel Assembly said the discovery answers the age-old questions. How does the brain create a map of the space surrounding us and how can we navigate our way through a complex environment? In 1971, Professor O'Keefe first saw that rats always use the hippocampus region of their brain when they're in certain locations in a room. Other nerve cells were activated when they're in other locations. So, O'Keefe concluded that these place cells were acting as a map of the room. His views were ridiculed. The Mersers worked with O'Keefe in 1996, and a decade later, they discovered grid cells in the entorhinal cortex region in the brains of rats, and they function as a navigation system. The grid cells tell an animal where they are, where they've been, and where they're going. This basic understanding may have implications for those people who've lost their spatial awareness through stroke, brain injury, or Alzheimer's disease. The 2014 Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to Stefan Hell from Germany and Americans Eric Betzig and William Mona for their invention of an optical microscope that gets around the diffraction limit to show objects much smaller than half the wavelength of the light shining on them. The resolution of microscopes has been limited to 200 nanometers for several hundred years. You can use wavelengths shorter than visible light, but the ultraviolet or x-rays end up killing the cells so you can't see them in action. Super-resolution fluorescence microscopy shows us the nanoscale world in visible light. After a decade of work to get around Abbe's limit, Stefan Hell bypassed the limit in 2000 by making things glow and combining lots of pictures. He tagged an E. coli bacterium with fluorescent proteins to make it give off light when stimulated by external light. This was the Stimulated Emission Depletion, or STED, microscope. A laser made parts of the sample glow a bit at a time. Combining photos of lasers stimulating different parts of the sample let him build a super high resolution image of the E. coli bacterium, way sharper than was possible with old style microscopes. 
from 200 nanometers on old style microscopes down to 35 nanometers. Myrner and Betzig discovered fluorescent proteins that could be turned on or off, and then, like hell, lit up small parts of their samples for individual photographs through the microscope, combining them all together for a sharper image that works around the diffraction limit. Super resolution fluorescence microscopy is now enabling scientists to look inside living cells in order to explore brain synapses, cell components, and watch cell division in embryos. The 2014 Nobel Prize in Physics was given to Isamo Akasaki from Meiya University, Hiroshi Amano from Nagoya University, and Shuji Nukamura from the University of California Santa Barbara for the invention of blue light-emitting diodes that enable us to create bright but low-power white light sources. Blue LEDs have turned up in everything very quickly. Manufacturers have used them to make cheaper and better smartphone and computer displays, as well as light bulb replacements that last a very long time and use very little power. An LED light bulb converts over 50% of the power into white light, so they're brighter for less power. Incandescent filament bulbs converted up to 4% of the power into light, and compact fluorescent bulbs convert up to 10% of the power into light. The rest is wasted as heat. LED bulbs last 10 times longer than compact fluorescent bulbs, which in turn last 10 times longer than the old incandescent filament bulbs. So the LED lights last 100 times longer than old style incandescent bulbs. Engineers can make white light directly out of just a blue LED by using a coating that glows red and green when hit by blue light. White LED lights based on blue LEDs are used in cars, traffic lights and TV displays. New tunable white LED lights are being made by combining the red, green and blue LEDs so that they can be switched from white to different shades of white to any colour at all. In 1962, red LEDs were first made from gallium arsenide phosphide and five years later a green LED was invented using the same material. However, gallium arsenide phosphide won't glow blue. The blue LEDs were made by atomic layer epitaxy, where layers are put down atomic layer by atomic layer of gallium nitride at a very high vacuum. The technology for this didn't come until 1994. The same gallium nitride is used to make the blue lasers that are used in Blu-ray video discs. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. It's three-minute thesis time. Entrants have to present their PhD thesis in three minutes in a way that a non-specialist can understand with only one slide. The 2014 Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition will be held on the 3rd of November at the University of Western Australia. People will fly in from all over Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong to compete, having won their places in competitions within their home universities. The individual universities are holding their finals right now to determine who will enter the Trans-Tasman Competition. Last year, the finals for the Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition were held at the University of Western Sydney. 
on their Parramatta campus. There were 44 participants on the day, presenting a new thesis every three minutes all day. Last week I played you one of the grand final entries. Here are five more of the best of the 2013 three-minute theses. Thomas Finn from the Institute of Advanced Studies from Massey University in New Zealand spoke of oxygen, a double-edged sword for life forms. We all think of oxygen as necessary for life, right? But the first forms of life on Earth didn't have any oxygen. And in fact, when oxygen did arrive, it almost completely wiped them out. But some life forms did survive, and this in time led to the amazing biodiversity that we see on the planet today. See, that's the thing about oxygen. It's actually a double-edged sword. This is because oxygen is very good at changing or mutating our DNA. And my research asks, why did some life forms go extinct while others literally begin to take over the world? Well, studying evolution has come a very long way from looking at dusty old fossils. And this is because we've actually figured out how to mimic evolution in the lab. But no one before me has thought to look at the role that oxygen has played. So to figure this out, I took a sample of these blue cells, which can grow both with and without oxygen. They're called E. coli, but I refer to them as the original cell. This is because at the very beginning of my experiment, I split this sample into four. They each then grew in either oxygen-rich or oxygen-free conditions for 4,000 bacterial generations. This is a little under two human years, but if bacteria lived as long as humans do, this would have taken me 80,000 years to complete. During this time, the cells adapt differently to their different environments, and we actually see this at the end of the experiment with the evolution of these evolved cells. So take, for example, this happy, or this handsome orange fellow. He has evolved a whole third eye, maybe to see oxygen better. Or this happy green fellow has developed hair, maybe to collect compounds like oxygen. These different evolved cells arise due to different changes or mutations in their DNA and I then needed to sequence their entire DNA to find which mutations were responsible for these changes. But that's only half the story. Wouldn't it be cool if I could tell which mutation was the best, whether having a third eye meant for a better cell than the evolution of all that hair? Well, this was done in a sort of Jurassic Park meets Hunger Games experiment, except instead of reviving dinosaurs, I revived our friend, the original cell. I then put him in a survival of the fittest battle against the evolved cells. Just like in the Hunger Games, the competitor which outlives the other is deemed the fitter of the two. So at the end of my experiment, I know A, which is the fitter cell, but also B, the mutations which made it the fitter cell. From my results, I am beginning to understand the mutations that meant the difference between life and death on Earth two billion years ago. These mutations are still in us today, and they allow us to use this double-edged sword to our advantage, but may also influence how we evolve in the future. Thank you very much. Demi Gao is from the Institute for Telecommunications Research from the University of South Australia. The title of her talk is Building a Better Bionic Ear.
probably can. However, one in six Australian people suffer from hearing loss and will not be able to hear these exciting talks clearly. But for some of them, a wonderful Australian invention called a cochlear implant offers the hope of gaining or restoring the ability to sense sound. A cochlear implant is a surgically implanted device that helps overcome the loss of special sensory receptor cells in the inner ear where auditory nerves are contained. The device mimics the lost cells by replacing them with an electrode array. Sounds are captured by a microphone and converted into electric signals, which then drive the electrodes to directly stimulate the auditory nerve. The auditory nerve then sends these signals to the brain, where it learns to recognize them as familiar sounds. Although cochlear implants enable recipients to converse without lip reading, there are many major hearing challenges that require significant improvements in their design. For example, recipients find it hard to enjoy music and to recognize speech in noisy backgrounds. They also have difficulty understanding anyone like me who speaks with an accent. One major factor that limits the performance of cochlear implant is the number of electrodes. Too few electrodes cannot represent enough sound frequencies. Too many electrodes result in interference between adjacent electrodes, which causes inappropriate stimulation of the auditory nerve. Can the performance of cochlear implants possibly be improved by finding the ideal balance between these two aspects? My research aims to answer this question. One approach is to find more precise positions of electrodes. I've devised a mathematical model that describes the interface between electrodes and the auditory nerve. This model has enabled me to predict the best placements of electrodes and the best possible performance of cochlear implant. Another approach is to generate virtual electrodes rather than to physically implant real ones. This can be achieved by simultaneously exciting two neighboring electrodes which would activate the auditory nerve in a different way than is possible by stimulating any single electrodes. My research also aims to predict the potential benefits of this approach using advanced mathematics techniques. I hope my research will help build a better bionic ear and transform people's lives. Thank you. Sharon Savage is from the School of Medical Sciences at the University of New South Wales. The title of her talk is Giving Words New Life in Dementia. Don't you just hate when you can't think of the word for something? That thingy, what's it? For dementia sufferers, the loss of words can be a constant battle, particularly in semantic dementia, where the names of everyday objects, like a toaster, might be easily forgotten. And as words are stripped away, the ability to carry out everyday activities, like the grocery shopping, can become significant challenges when words like carrot suddenly don't have any meaning anymore. Imagine you've gone to the supermarket 
and you look down at your shopping list, only to discover you don't know what any of these words mean. Your doctor tells you it's because there's a part of your brain that's shrinking, and there's no cure for this. All you can do is watch these words disappear. Yet research is now showing that these same patients may have an ability to relearn words, but many questions remain about the best methods, who's likely to benefit, and why. In my PhD, I've been exploring the extent to which simple methods to restore everyday words could provide meaningful and lasting gains to these patients. How have I done this? Well, you've all heard that practice makes perfect. To give my patients an opportunity to practice everyday words like toaster or carrot, I've designed an online program that lets them log in from home for about half an hour a day over a two-month period, and it works. Resoundingly, my participants have shown clear improvements in just a matter of weeks, and the method is simple. Pairing back a picture of the object with the word itself, repeated again and again and again. Even better, if they continue practicing on a weekly basis, these words can improve and stay improved. Importantly, I've shown for the first time that not only do they learn these words on the computer, but they can make use of them in everyday life. So that if a family member says, hey, could you switch on the toaster? They understand again what this means. This brings important hope to dementia sufferers and their families, and adds to a growing body of research that shows us how amazing our brains can be to make positive change, even under the strain of disease. In my final studies, I'll be trying to explore how this is possible in the brain using sophisticated brain imaging techniques that allow me to look at the change in activation in the brain as a result of training. Ultimately, this helps us to answer how it is that we can influence our brains by working our minds. Thank you. Runner-up for the 2013 Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition was Lily Chang. Lily Chang is from Optometry and Vision Science in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. The title of her talk is An Eye on Alzheimer's Disease. I am so sure we've met. I know that I've known you for a long time, but I don't know who you are. This is what my grandfather had said to my father. He had Alzheimer's disease. Years later, I encountered Alzheimer's in a very different situation. An elderly man who I saw for an eye examination was diagnosed with glaucoma. And coincidentally, Alzheimer's in the very same year. It made me wonder whether the eye condition was related to and could have predicted the Alzheimer's. After all, the eyes are sensory extensions of the brain, and complaints related to vision are among some of the earliest symptoms in Alzheimer's patients. There is now evidence that glaucoma signs in a certain type of cataract may be linked to Alzheimer's. On the other hand, the likely reason why we still haven't found a cure or preventative therapy for Alzheimer's is because the disease is often diagnosed when significant damage in the brain has already occurred. So, 
Perhaps we do have the right therapy. We are simply treating it too late. Therefore, the question I am asking in my PhD thesis is, what if Alzheimer's disease could be diagnosed early enough with the aid of a simple eye examination? My PhD hypothesis states that there are neurochemical changes in the eyes of Alzheimer's patients detectable through eye testing. There are two components to my thesis, an animal model and a clinical model. The animal model involves a unique South American rodent which develops Alzheimer's disease naturally. My preliminary data has already identified Alzheimer's protein and associated stress in the sensory structure of the eyes. I have also found a probable deficit in the nervous system which controls pupil response in the same animals. The next step will be comparing the eyes of Alzheimer's patients versus healthy, normal individuals. For example, how their pupils react, how well the eyes perceive motion, and whether the optic nerves linking the eyes to the brain may also degenerate. An eye examination specifically designed for the early diagnosis of Alzheimer's will complement and simplify current clinical protocols. With early diagnosis, treatment, and even prevention, that's how you and I will be able to remember our loved ones. And that's how my thesis can help you and your brain take the path of normal aging as opposed to Alzheimer's. Thank you. And the winner of the 2013 Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Grand Finals was Kelsey Kennedy. Kelsey Kennedy is from the Faculty of Engineering, Computing and Mathematics at the University of Western Australia. The title of her winning 3-Minute Thesis talk was Feeling for Cancer an imaging tool to make breast cancer surgery more effective. For many women, it begins when they feel a hard, suspicious lump during a self-examination. Then comes a trip to the doctor, and for some, the dreaded news you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Now many of these women will have one or both breasts completely removed, but there is another option. Most could opt to have breast conserving surgery, and this is where just the tumor is removed, along with the surrounding margin of healthy tissue, and the rest of the breast is spared. Now this seems like the better option, right? But there's a catch. Because for breast conserving surgery to work, all of the tumor must be completely removed. And if I'm a surgeon, I'm trying to cut just around the boundaries of your tumor to within a couple of millimeters. And in one out of every four of those surgeries, I'm going to miss just a little bit. And I'm going to have to call my patient and say, I'm sorry, we didn't get it all. You're going to have to come back for a second surgery. Now the main way that surgeons currently find the tumor boundaries is by feeling for the cancer, much like the way the woman originally felt the hard lump. But while we may often think of tumors as being these round objects, the actual shape of a breast tumor is very complex. It has tentacle-like structures that grow out into the tissue, and some of these small extensions of cancer can be just fractions of a millimeter in size, too small to detect through human touch alone. 
So I want to come up with a tool that surgeons can use to find the precise tumor boundaries and cut in the right place the first time. Now we've actually come up with a way to do this. We've taken a microscope which can see even these small extensions of cancer, and we've miniaturized the optics to fit inside a needle. Now what surgeons can use this microscope and a needle, insert it into the tissue and see if there's any cancer in a particular area. We're working with surgeons right now to test this idea. And so far, we have been able to see some tumor boundaries. But we've also noticed a problem. And that's that when you insert a needle into tissue, the tissue actually deforms around the needle quite a lot. And that can distort our images. But rather than let that confound us, I've actually come up with a way to measure that deformation. Because we know that cancer feels different, often harder than the healthy tissue, and I've found that the cancer actually moves differently in our images than the surrounding healthy tissue. So now, our microscope in a needle is not only looking for cancer, but feeling for cancer as well. And with that information in the hands of a surgeon, we just might be able to make breast cancer surgery more effective the first time around. Thank you. You can find out more about the 3-Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karengai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher. Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. And subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, pictures and videos from this week's show. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au. It's in slow motion, but it's getting there. It might take a few more weeks before we go live. I will notify you. I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to contribute a small science story on Diffusion? Or would you like to read one of my scripts? I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. All over the Earth today, there are thousands of cooperating weather stations using barometers, hygrometers, anemometers, thermometers, 
rain gauges and other instruments, they gather valuable weather information. Scientists are cooling clouds to produce rain and using various methods to try to stop hurricanes. They are also obtaining valuable information from Earth satellites. Meteorology, the science of weather, is opening new frontiers in weather prediction and control, and every day we are learning more and more about What makes the lightning, what makes the thunder, what makes the rain and sleet and snow? What makes the weather, what makes the weather, what makes the 